guys. Welcome to another episode of Live with the Cork in the Road. I'm Kelly. I'm your wine explorer here in Atlanta, Georgia, and I am chatting with people who are shaping the Southeast wine industry. Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Cork in the Road podcast. I am happy to have you if you're a first-time listener, and I'm really happy to have you if you've been listening from the start. Thank you so much. I've heard from a few people online on Instagram that have said, this season is really good. So season five is rocking it. I can't say I have a favorite because all of the guests have always helped me learn something new, be inspired, and stay connected through wine. So hopefully that does the same for you. But today's episode... I don't know if you normally do this or not, but I highly recommend this time for this episode, please listen all the way through. I got to sit down and talk with certified sommelier and sales consultant, Ryan Mullins. He's been mentioned on the podcast before. He's been a listener. So to have him on the show was so fun. And he has so much joy for what he does in wine. He gives advice to fellow wine professionals. He talks about what makes Atlanta unique and how we can continue to put our stamp on the map of what we do best here. He talks about his wine collection and how we got started in wine. And it's just a really insightful episode if you are just beginning your journey or if you are a fellow wine professional in the Southeast region and beyond. So we really hope that you enjoy this episode. I had so much fun chatting with Ryan and I will actually be competing in the upcoming blind tasting competition that we talk about on this episode. So I got to get serious, time to get studying. I want to win that belt. Thank you so much for listening and supporting the show. Our wine bags are still available online for holiday gifting for all of your wine lovers in your life. I hope that you all have a safe and healthy holiday season. Cheers and take care. Thank you so much for being here, Ryan. It's good to see you. Good to see you. It's my pleasure to be here. I have been wanting to get you on the show because you've actually been mentioned on the show by several guests. You're pretty well respected in the Atlanta wine community. Are you a are you a podcast person? Have you done one before? Um, I've never done a podcast. I've never been on a podcast, but I am a podcast person, like early podcast person. Like I recommended grape radio podcast to every Atlanta professional in 2006 and seven. I would talk about it every wine tasting. I listened to a lot of podcasts because I spent a lot of time in the car and I do listen to this podcast and I enjoy it. And I've been flattered when I've heard my name come up and, uh, yeah, I've, I've called Whitney and I've called people afterwards to say, I love you back. Thank you very much. I don't... Oh, no way. That's really cool. Well, then it's even more important that we finally have you Thank as you. a guest to get your side of the story of the Atlanta wine community. But I don't work with you directly, but I actually first knew you as the host of the annual blind tasting competition here at Vino Venue. I went a couple of times and I was like, oh, who's this guy? He's the host. He gives away this like wrestling belt to the winner. That's what I knew you as. Come to find out later that you actually are a three-time winner of that same blind tasting competition. That's crazy. Yeah. No, I, I, I don't. The first year we did it was, God, maybe 2007. Uh, and Michael Bryan was like, yeah, you know, Eric Crane's going to be here and Rob Van Leer's going to be here and we might have some other people. And they called it man versus wine and then woman versus wine because eventually we, we were able to get some more people to join us. And yeah, I've, I've been blind tasting since oh, 2000, 
three or four, Michael McNeil started kind of mentoring a group at Restaurant Eugene, uh, which was a consistent wine tasting group that basically um, went from there, well, to Canoe for a number of years, then Atlas for a number of years. Now it's at King and Duke. Uh, and so, yeah, yeah, blind tasting for a long time and, uh, and was lucky enough to win that uh, competition by like a point a number of times. Uh, and actually, Michael Bryan, before he passed away, the former owner of, of Vino Venue and his wife, uh, Lilia, still does, along with Rob, I said to him as we were eating a tomahawk steak two weeks before we passed, I said, you know, Michael, this year for you, because I wanted him to win it and I was hoping he'd still be around, I'm going to buy a WWF style wrestling belt that will engrave with people's names and we'll give it away and it'll be so ridiculous uh and uh and when i bought it and it came to the house and it had fake alligator skin and it was big and just ridiculous my kids were crestfallen when they found out that i had to give it away and they're like dad you have to go win it i'm like i can't win it i'm giving it i'm gonna be the host and now it's so fun to be the host because it's just about making my fellow sommeliers letting their brilliance shine really uh and it's really easy to do because Atlanta's full of some really bright and fun people. And then you give them the bell and it like seals the deal. Like now they're in the club. They're part of the winner crew. Like that is incredible. Hopefully your kids have one too now, by now. I don't know. <laughs> I think I said at one point I was going to buy one, but I think they got to earn it somehow. So we'll figure that out. Uh, yeah, it's it's fun to wear that belt. It can, it's multi-sized. You can wear it around. And yeah, I always encourage the winner, you know, like take it to a concert. Uh, make sure that you wear it home, though. We do want to have it back. It is special to us. Um, and since it's, I think it was framed the year and a half ago by the last winner. Uh, so, so now it's in a frame. It'll go up on their wall. But, you know, I, it's kind of like, you know, in emergency break glass. If you ever need to rep that you're a good blind taster, I would be cool with somebody pulling that back out of the glass and just sporting it. Instant gratification for, yeah, for, sure. for the win that you have accomplished. And I think that's really cool. You say you were lucky to win it, but I think blind tasting is an incredible skill. It combines so much of wine education, but for you, the utility of blind tasting, what is the value for you? How do you use it in your everyday? Really for me, blind tasting is all about um, honing my palate and paying attention to what's in the glass. It's an odd thing because so much of my job is about building the context of wine. Why is a duality in the papacy in Avignon, why has that become the name of Chateauneuf de Pop because he loved the wine and all of that? Whereas blind tasting, you're completely taking the context away, but it humbles you. It keeps you honest. It makes you forget all that you've learned and what you've been told uh, things are supposed to be. And uh, you can re-engage with the wine that you know so well uh, as a stranger. So yeah, it, re it really helps me to stay honest with my palate and what I'm perceiving and noticing changes in myself, but also noticing changes in regions. And it's something that I think from the outside, people hear about blind tasting and they go, wow, these people are, they're, they were gifted. They started with an amazing palate. I get that all the time. And what I have to explain to people is when I was in high school, I was on the wrestling team. I one time headbutt a guy by accident and broke my nose. I have a deviated septum. I don't have the most gifted palate on the planet, but much like your favorite band coming on the radio, Four beats in, you know the song. You don't, you're not thinking about why. And while the deductive part of blind tasting will allow you to eliminate a lot and seem seem more correct more often, for me, I've been called an inspirational taster by Master Sommeliers because while I will sniff and call and they teach you not to do that, they teach you to deductively go through it, 
Um, sometimes I'll stick my nose in the glass and it's, it's the song I know. And so I call it. Okay. So what is one of those songs? Do you have a wine that you are like, I nail that every time. And then I guess I'm also curious, is there one that you just keep getting tripped up on? That is like your crux. Like, can you name those? I'm really good at naming Northern Rhone, Hermitage for sure. Uh, uh, Cornas as well. I feel like I'm pretty good at nailing. Um, I think I'm pretty good at Nebbiolo. I mean, particularly certain producers. I, over time, the joy of my job is that I've become friends with a lot of the people who make my wines. And honestly, that's what gets me out of bed. It's preserving the culture of the Merkelbach twins and the Mosul or making sure that uh, Giuseppe Vira has someone telling the story of his land and his wines. And so, yeah, if you if you blind taste me, which has happened um, in the, the competition uh, at Vino Venue, Michael McNeil had put uh, Shav San Joseph in the lineup. And I called it Shav San Joseph on the vintage. Same thing with the Vietti 2010 Barola, which sounds crazy, but it's not because when you really drink these wines, and, and, and that's something else about my job. I'll taste a few hundred, maybe a thousand wines in a given year. And sometimes I'll be in a tasting where I'll taste 40 wines. And over time, I've really learned that much like speed dating, blind tasting or tasting for work, and whether it be at a trade show or quickly in a winery through 25 barrels is like getting to know someone for a minute or two. But when you sit down and you have dinner and you have deep conversation and you really dig into why things are the way they are, you get to know a wine so much better. And that's when, to me, it imprints itself on you. And you can't say why Franck Balthazar tastes like Cornas. It's just the tasting notes, but it's it's that it is a vin de soif. It's a wine of thirst while being so rich and dense and tannic and built to age. So, yeah. So I say all that to say that we've had blind tasters join our tasting group. And I watched June Lim and Jacob Gregg come in and blind taste for their first time. And I was there when a sommelier leaned over next to me who had been in the blind tasting group for a few years and said, you know, one of these guys just said Heligenstein, like because he read it in a book last night, but we're like pouring Viognier maybe we should get another group for him. And I'm like, hey, buddy, give him like two or three months. And lo and behold, Jacob Gregg and June Lim, within six months, were some of the best tasters in the city. And now I watch Jacob Gregg every Tuesday morning at King and Duke, like break down exactly how to blind taste and why things are the way they are. Um, so I think anybody with some practice, which I, I'm sure you've seen, uh, can get pretty good at blind tasting within three to six months if they practice every week. And really do it with repetition. Try it the same way every time. The speed dating versus sitting down at a dinner party and getting to know those certain wines, those producers. What a great analogy for the wines in blind tasting where sometimes you can't even explain why you know it's that, but you just know it's that because you've had dinner with them. Like that is such a great yeah. way to think about it. Thinking about that, you don't always taste wine all day. I'm sure there are people that may think that your job is that, but I know it's not that. What is your day-to-day -day role at Winebow right now? I know it's not always blind tasting, but it helps. No, absolutely. And it's not always sitting down with a chef uh, and tasting the beef they're going to turn into carpaccio. Um, it's something different all the time. And, and it, that is the reason I work in distribution. I was a sommelier for five years. I worked at Murphy's from 2002 to 2007. I took Tom Murphy's son to Alaska on a leadership program. So I worked in summer camps and I knew what it was to love my job. And um, 
But then while working at Murphy's, I was watching these guys and girls come in from wine distributors and it looked like they were having a lot of fun. And then one day I was sitting in a lineup and this guy, Eric Crane, came back to pour a wine from Bordeaux for us from Chateau Haute Beauséjour for a lineup. And someone said, what does Haute Beauséjour mean? And Eric said, it means I'm happy because I'm high. And he's like, in fact, I sold 14 cases of this on the Grateful Dead tour like seven years ago. And this is like a great Bordeaux to drink in a parking lot. And I'm like, this guy is fun. And these guys are having too much fun. And I need to figure out how to do that job where I can be somewhere different all the time. When I was working in a restaurant, I had people five days a week coming in to do wine pairings. Murphy's particularly is a diverse place with a restaurant uh, and a wine list. Uh, and the great, my greatest mentor of my career, Tom Murphy, just all these sweet, dynamic people. But I like being somewhere different all the time. And so my job allows me to do that. I spend a lot of time doing education for the restaurants uh, that I sell wine to. Or uh, I, do, I spend a lot of time making sure that I steward the proper allocations to the proper places. Uh, there are a lot of wines in Georgia that are so highly allocated that we might see a few bottles from a few different single vineyards. And my job is to make sure that when the Shav comes to town, it's poured at Spring Restaurant, um, where, where it's going to be amongst the beautiful food that will really celebrate it. That's a big job. That's a really big job because you guys have a big portfolio. So you have to know your customers as well as your wines when it comes to a business-to-business -business transaction. That's really interesting. Have you been drinking the Bordeaux in the parking lot? Did that happen to you? Because I'm wondering if that was a goal. It happened. Oh, it happened. <laughs> it's my favorite thing. Not not Beauzé's Jour, but uh, about a month ago, Eric Crane realized that he and I were going to a concert. And he and I will often just not plan on who we're going with. So the day of, he was like, yo, I'll come pick you up. Let's hang out. And we drank Corton Charlemagne from Tola Beau in the parking lot, which like, it was amazing out of beautiful glassware. I brought some Zalto. You brought, you brought a Zalto to the parking lot? This yes, happened? but I'm telling you, it gets better. It gets better. <laughs> so, so when you go into the show, my favorite thing to do is to bring a Magnum to a concert, right? And you pour yourself for some for yourself, some for your friends. If you have a Govino, that's 10 ounces, so you can walk in with that. But then you walk into the show with maybe another glass, and you find someone. Maybe it's a friend who you haven't seen in a while, and you put a glass of Christum Mount Jefferson Pinot Noir in their glass as they're going in to see Willie Nelson, and they're like, everything just got better. Um, but but the the Tola Beau Corton Charlemagne, we had out of Zalto. It was delicious. But then Eric's like, I'm like, do you have any to-go cups? He's like, all I have is Chick-fil-A coffee cups. And those are cardboard coffee cups, so they're not plastic. And they won't leak. And uh, and we poured it in there. And Grand Cru Burgundy tastes delicious out of coffee cups, too. It turns out. Who knew? You heard yeah. it here first. Oh, my God. This is great for me because as much as I know your professional world is wine, what you just described is adventurous. It's fun. You're still being playful with the products that you're selling. And you enjoy the stories that go along with it. Like, how perfect okay. is that? Such a joy. And I know that wine education is something that you do take seriously, even though sometimes you're at a tailgate, but you do take the wine education piece very seriously. And because we mentioned that a lot of people refer to you as a mentor, I can't help but ask, like, how do you work with students? And you mentioned people where they start and six months later, what's it like to work with someone as they are on their journey? It's the best. I probably 25 times a year have a conversation that I entitle in my head, so you want to be in the wine business. 
And sometimes it's coffee and sometimes it's breakfast. My classic move for about a decade was to get people to meet me at the Majestic at 8 a.m. on Monday morning. Because if they weren't willing to do that, they probably weren't willing to be in the wine business anyways. Oh yeah, God. no, yeah. And so it's amazing because I've had so many conversations with Whitney, with Joe Herrig, with so many people where I think often when wine reps talk about this job, they talk about how hard it is and they talk about the problems. Um, and while it's not the easiest job all the time, and while usually if your phone rings at four o'clock on a Friday, it's because something didn't show up and the party's going to be there in two hours. In fact, to give people an idea, before this podcast got started, I had to chill down 12 bottles of Saint-Hilaire Blanquette de Lemieux for La Petite Maison, a French restaurant in Roswell who didn't get their order, so I can drop it off at six, so then I can be at a wine tasting at seven at Dunwoody Country Club. Um, so it's this multifaceted thing, but, but to watch these professionals grow and fall in love with a career where every two weeks they get paid and it kind of feels like a joke, like it does for me, it's the greatest part of my career. Uh, and it is, it is one of, along with preserving the culture of beautiful wine from all over the world uh, and celebrating this golden age of wine where we can drink Nebbiolo Longiroso tonight, or we can drink Gruner Veltlinger tonight that was temperature control shipped, is uh, helping to create a more diverse uh, wine industry in Atlanta. And so what happens really quickly, actually, is that people go from asking questions to me being able to look to them for insight. Um, I learned from Jacob. I learned from June. Casey Ivey, I learned from her still. It switches really quickly. So it's a joy to get to work with people and to, I think from the outside, which is part of the reason why this podcast is so interesting and wonderful, is that the wine industry is opaque. People think that it's just like wine festivals and what is this job really like during the day? And so I'm the, I like to spelunk with people and put the headlamp on. And I'm like, so these are the Excel spreadsheets. This is what happens when the Euro goes from 108 to 121. This is what happens when shipping doubles from New Zealand. And so that's, if you love diversity, if you love economies, if you love culture, if you love history, if you love to ask yourself, why am I sitting in Badia Cultabono, a church that's been here since the 11th century, eating with biodynamic farmer Roberto Stucchi, drinking Vinsanto from the 60s, it's the greatest business ever because it is a connector. We said it before we got on today, but I many times in my life have, have I feel like I'm impersonating someone else because I'm like, why do we get to be here? Why do we get to enjoy these things? Why do we get to share? Uh, and, uh, so it's, it's a joy and it's a joy to see people come up and it's a trip. And now I've seen it enough times that when I sit with people, I try to be open to being a mentor or answering any questions anybody has, but mentees, smart mentees usually choose people. And recently I got chosen by this really bright guy who's going to have a massively huge future in the wine business. And I find myself saying to him, like, we're going to laugh at this conversation in four years because you're going to be there. You're going to be running a giant territory. You're going to be making things happen for people. And it's going to feel right. And now he's just in the beginning of it. So it's so fun. You seem surprised by these moments. And I think that's what I love most about this is I know how accomplished you are to other people, you seem very accomplished to other people and because you are, and yet you're over here still surprised by some of the opportunities that you have. And that to me is a beautiful place to be. 
in wine. And maybe it's the blind tasting that's constantly humbling. Maybe it's recognizing the, the greater than the sum of the parts. You know, I think that there is a lot of that where you sit, you see the industry as a whole. You see those Excel sheets, you see the retail sales, you see the import business, you get like a bird's eye view. You should be excited about those things because they don't happen just because you have earned that. Given that we do talk on the podcast to a lot of people in the industry in the Southeast, what are your some experiences with changes in retail sales over the years and maybe even with COVID? Like where is this retail market going? Wow. It's, I mean, it's changing really dramatically. It's, you know, in your mind, you have these ideas while you're in a career and particularly a career that you're going to stay in for your whole life that if I wanted to hike this, the Camino de Santiago, or if I wanted to hike the Appalachian Trail, could I step away for two months or six months? And then could I come back? And while you could, I think the wine business is actually changing faster than it ever has. Um, I think the consumer is becoming more empowered and it's so exciting because when you're sitting with wine lovers, whether it be in a country club or a wine dinner or talking to someone in a shop, people are so much more informed than they used to be and they have a supercomputer in their hand. So that's a really wonderful part of it. Um, I think the, the dynamics of the business are changing in that access is so much easier than it used to be. Now we live in a hot state and it's important that you temperature control ship wine. If wine changes in 15 degree temperature swing from even 65 to 75, the thermodynamics of alcoholic liquid are such that it will expand out of the bottle and leak. You won't have a seal. If, you're, if you have collector wine that showed up in May or something, you could lose things. So there's a, a lot of direct to consumer business happening. Uh, you say that as today too, direct-to-consumer shipments showed up at my door thanks to UPS because it's that time because it's cool enough to ship. So here exactly. I am just living exactly what you just mentioned. Totally. And so it's wonderful because whether it be from the auction market, uh, I'll never forget in like 2005, I used to go home from working a shift at Murphy's at 10 o'clock and I would get online and look on WineBid and eBay. You could buy wine on eBay at the time. And when I would see six bottles of 1978 to 1982 Georges de la Tour cab and the minimum at the time was like, $35 a bottle, I'd be like, well, if they sell for this, it'd be criminal not to put in a bid. So let me just see. And then say, just like you, all of a sudden, I, my apartment building in the Virginia Highlands had like 12 boxes in front of the door. And my girlfriend is like, what is this? And I'm like, when Thomas Jefferson was the president of the United States, he made 25 grand a year and he spent 11 grand on wine. So it's not that bad. <laughs> justification um, of the century. I'm a buyer as much as I'm a seller. I'm really, I would rather drink uh, a glass of wine than sell it. Uh, and so I think that's part of my love of wine is that there are a lot of people in this business who could be in insurance sales or vacuum cleaner sales. They're just really great salespeople. And if I wasn't working in this business, I would still be showing up to blind tastings. If there was no master sommelier, I would still be showing up to blind tastings. Um, and with that said, I meant to say this when talking about the mentorship, but one of the things I talk about with people now, which I didn't talk about with them 15 years ago, was that when you get into the wine business, there will be way more opportunities for you to drink wine than is healthy for you to drink wine, even if you're spitting. So you need to get really good at saying no. You need to get really good at smelling and tasting and spitting because everywhere you show up, you are the wine person. And so everyone wants to pull something out of their cellar and pop a cork and it can get dangerous. And so my rule of thumb is taking three, four nights off a week from drinking and never drinking at lunch personally for me. I know a lot of people have this European mentality of I can have a glass and if it works for you, great for everyone. 
for me, it puts me to sleep in the afternoon and my job's entirely too complicated. Not to mention, I'm driving around with an open container of, of wine, which I'm allowed to have because I have a license to do that in Georgia. You have to as a distributor. But yeah, you shouldn't you shouldn't have a buzz doing that. Um, so, so being really good at saying no uh, and then smelling and taking your time with them is a big part of being a good professional in the wine business because uh, I've seen a lot of people in my job die at 45 to 55. And like, I always have said to myself, when you become a raging alcoholic, you're a raging alcoholic for the rest of your life and you can never get it back. So I never want to lose it, which means I just, I, I keep it at a moderate level as much as possible. Excellent advice. I think that goes back to the, the perception of you're a wine professional and what that means to the outside world. Yeah. but remembering the reality of the product that you're selling and that you are driving around and that you are meeting with people, you are interacting with customers in a professional environment. So all of that, even at a big trade show tasting, it's still alcohol. So I really appreciate your advice on that. No, and I'll say for anybody in the business listening to this, you remember when your mother used to tell you, you can go to that high school party and just hold a drink and no one will notice. I can't tell you how many times, I, and I'll go to this country club tasting tonight, and at 9.45, someone with really rosy cheeks, who's really sweet, will get really close to me. I th I'm going to think they're trying to kiss my cheek. And they're going to be like, oh, my God, how do you do this every night? Oh, my God. I've, and, and I'll say to them, no, you know, I, don't, I haven't had anything to drink all night. I had a little champagne. Michael Ferguson came over here from the United Table. I poured him some special club that I had, had under the table because he's an OG and needs that love from us because he's so cool. And other than that, like everyone assumes you're drinking, but it's better to just be a little restrained. And when I get home tonight, I might have a Nico whiskey. I might have a little bit of the Terra Neri Etna Rosso that I opened for my wife to have with their friends. But while I drive up to, to uh, Dunwoody, I will not be drinking really. So good. So the answer to that question, when they say, how do you do this every night? You say, I don't, <laughs> I just don't. I, just, I do not do that. And I don't do that every day. I think it's really key to kind of bring that ground setting of, the industry that we live and breathe in and all the different contextual things that come along with that. But you don't drink normal stuff. You drink some unicorn, like unicorn level stuff, Ryan. I see your pictures. I know. So seriously, wild vintages, highly allocated wines. Even if you're not drinking every night, you're still drinking well. Do you have a seller? Are you a collector? Yes. I'm a collector by nature. Um, I collect books records and wine. And I started collecting wine when I was 21. That was before I even really fell so hard. I fell for wine at 21. Uh, and while working in a little Italian restaurant, and I immediately thought to myself, if I, there was a wine called Fieldstone Cabernet, and this is in 2000, the fall of 2002, it was 1993 vintage Napa Valley Cabernet that I could buy on closeout for $15. And I thought to myself, if I hold this in my apartment for three years, and then I bring it to someone's birthday, I will have really thoughtfully like done something special for them that could never happen again. And so I started collecting immediately at 21. And, uh, and I've been collecting the whole time. It's like anything else, the longer you do it, the more confident you become in what you love. Collecting is so self-referential. It's a lot of like a record collection. It says where you were, when you bought it, uh, and what was in your head and what was important to you just like wine is a reference to culture and what is important in a culture. Uh, but yeah, I'm a, I am a wine collector and, uh, and I'm lucky enough. I would rather drink Muscadet with people I love than Montrachet with people I don't love. I have a few friends who 
fell in love with wine in their late 20s and have been successful enough to collect as well. Um, one of them being a guy named John Rothenmill, who owns a place called Highland Wine and Diamonds. We've been friends since we were 11. We've been playing poker. We get together every month, and uh, and he buys sellers, so he'll bring crazy things. And it's really about um, – sometimes in wine-tasting circles, it's about one-upsmanship. And our thing is more about, like, let's throw our arms around each other, and let, we're here together. Let's share something special. Uh, and so part of the self-fulfilling prophecy of that is that when you post something on Instagram – Sometimes a collector will reach out to you and say to you, hey, I have a bunch of 60s and 70s Lopez de Heredia, and I'm not in love with it anymore. And while it's appreciated sixfold, I would rather sell it to you and you can bring it out in your blind tasting group. You can bring it out with your friends because I know you all are going to drink it. As long as you tell me you're not going to resell it, I'll sell it to you for what I bought it for. And that's how during COVID, I got like 16 bottles of Lopez de Heredia and Cune back to 1966. And you know, when meeting with best friends on their front porch in the middle of February, when we're all three of us are going to turn 40 in, in uh, 2021, we're all born in 81, and I can bust out an 81, Lopez de Heredia, and share it. That's what wine by itself is so, it's just the liquid, but together it becomes everything. And so my collection over time hasn't gotten like bigger in numbers, uh, but it's gotten significantly better because I buy less, but what I buy is more special. And honestly, I try not to just drink unicorn wines. Like I'm trying not to go, there's 12 bottles of Tola Beau Corton Charlemagne, which I mentioned that came in the state. Natalie Tola Beau poured that wine for me at the domain. It was crazy delicious. It was 19 when I was there in the summer. I hogged six bottles for myself. My friends, I should not say this on the podcast, but my really good homeboys call me the wine goalie because sometimes I stop things for myself. <laughs> and I actually think all you wine people who are listening to this, keep some of the crazy stuff for yourself. You deserve it. If we're going to be the Pied Piper, if we're going to be dispensing love of wine, then some of the crazy things will never go on Instagram because no one will ever know that I got them because I'll be drinking them with my friends at a poker night or at a tailgate. Uh, one of my favorite things is to combine really great wine with really delicious food. Like I invited you to that tasting this week um, where I was with the continuum guys and I got some Rodney Scott whole hog barbecue and made and did pork sandwiches. I love going to see grandma Han at the stone bowl on Buford highway and getting her private room and throwing out 10 bottles with a bunch of dumplings and everything else. Um, I love combined. I've, I've brought the Bruniers there uh, from Vu Telegraph. I brought Jasmine Hirsch there. Yeah, one of my favorite things about being here in Atlanta is showing the people of the wine world what a wonderful city we have. Um, and I'll evangelize for one more second. Other wine people listening to this, when you go see them at their homes, at their wineries, think how they treat you. In Italy, grandma's in the corner rolling the pinche pasta from the wild boar that got shot by grandpa earlier today. And when we get they get here, we're like, get in the car and we drive them around for eight hours. I'm like, Let's start the day by bringing them to the MLK Center without telling them. Like, that's 8.30 in the morning. Then let's go see a couple lovely people. Then let's bring them to a unique Atlanta food spot and show them what's wonderful about us. Let's play Outcast during the day. Let's play Goody Mob. Let's play Curtis Mayfield. Let's, like, give them what is really Atlanta. And I promise you, the wonderful people want to come here because we, we welcome them with open arms. And we don't treat it like business. We treat it like the joy that it is. Uh, and, and that mentality of like, we get to do this, I think is how you, you retain the joy. 
Not I have to drive around these people, but I get to. When you go there, they treat you well too. I mean, it's like, it's a multiplier effect. And suddenly, uh, again, you end up in wonderful places with wonderful people. This makes me happy that someone like you, once again, is in the role that you are. Because you're talking about this, even though you drink a lot of spectacular wines that are collector items, you're drinking them. They're not sitting somewhere that you are going to resell them. I love that that's a, that's like a byline of like, you do not resell this, you drink this. You enjoy it and I can hear it as you talk about the way that you even show your clients the city of Atlanta and the wine scene here. So what is next for Atlanta? What can we be known for? Oh, uh, you know, like so many, as Andre 3000 said, Atlanta, the South has got something to say, right? And so I think we just, we just become more of us. And Atlanta's superpower is its diversity. And that diversity, its superpower has never been fully leveraged in the wine business, but we're getting there. Like the diversity of palates, the diversity of perspectives, uh, the diversity of cultures, diversity of food. And the more we in the wine industry can pull that in and the more that we can meet that where it's at, um, I think we'll become an even more wonderful place. New York, people talk about New York keeping all the big allocations and getting all the wine and it stays up there and it goes to LA and it never gets here. And what I actually want to say is it's not totally true. When we talk about like so many of these allocated wines, there's so little of it and everyone is going after it. And so yes, in the port cities where these wines come through, they get stuck there sometimes and we don't get as, we don't get as much, but I think we have our own unique culture that is distinctly Southern in that it's looking for authenticity. And I think originally it was looking for authenticity in Europe. When I got in the wine scene in the early 2000s, it was kind of all about old school Europe, particularly Bordeaux and Burgundy and the Rhone, uh, and then Italy, Brunello, Barolo, Amarone. Uh, and then it was, it was about like big California. And now I think over time, Atlanta's gotten more interested in the yeah, extra dimensional wine co yeah kind of things like shout out to hardy like Red Light and, and people like yourself who are like going out to virginia and showing what's beautiful there, going up to north georgia i mean i used to bag on north georgia wines and say that quality to price ratio when i was 22 that it wasn't there and you should just buy 12 dollars malbec and then i was sitting in tiger mountain winery in my favorite county in georgia raven county five years ago with my wife and david sweeney's cooking food and the kids are running around the vineyard and I'm like, oh my God, we're in wine country. And it's like 80 miles from Atlanta and it's so beautiful and it's eight degrees cooler up here. And this Cab Franc Rosé is good. Wow. We're having with local food. This is the most wonderful thing. Um, so I think part of it is going to be embracing what we have regionally uh, and, and continuing to find our food ways in supporting local agriculture, tying that to wine, but as well as... I mean, the Korean food scene in Atlanta is exciting. The Vietnamese food scene is exciting. Uh, the Chinese food scene is amazing. Desta, Ethiopian food, amazing. So I think there's a lot of things we can do to keep doubling down on what's great about Atlanta. And as long as we continue to pull in diverse perspectives of all backgrounds, I think we're going to we're gonna be our own thing and we don't have to be anyone else. We can, we can be Atlanta. And if we do that with zeal and love, then Southern hospitality really exists. You know, so often a winemaker will be like, you don't have to come to the airport. I'll meet you. And I'm like, what are you talking about? No, I'm picking you up in the morning and we'll go grab a coffee and then I'll get you to the airport. Like going above and beyond to show our generosity as Southerners 
and what makes us great, I think will help us become more of ourselves. And then I think Georgia can become more of a powerhouse in the wine business if we can also change a little bit of our laws. I think Georgia needs to allow for shipping outside of the state. Just like you said, uh, you have two pack packages coming to your house today from outside of the state, but Sarah Pierre at Three Parks can't ship to someone in lower Alabama. And Sarah Pierre has, I live in her neighborhood. I love her wine shop. I love everything about her business. And I know her clients have a house in Destin and they would love for her to be able to ship wine and spring the fall down to her. And in the state of Georgia, we're like, ah, we don't want to rewrite anything because we're worried that our old laws might fall apart. But at the same time, so much wine is being shipped in and more wine is being shipped in all the time. State of Georgia has one of the highest tax rates on alcohol of any state in the country, which makes it hard to be price competitive on affordable wines. But if we could look at that and we could bring more wine in through being able to ship it out and letting it go through our tax channels, I think we could perpetuate more independent business. And again, if I live in Dothan, Alabama, I would be shopping at Perrine Shop Online and I'd be shipping some wine down. I'd be going to Vinoteca's site after I heard your podcast and I'd buy some wine from Katie. Like, I think we can change the laws and hopefully we're, we're getting more there. Allowing restaurants to sell wine, I think is one thing. Delivery is another thing that's a big deal uh, because all of us are too busy. I don't know about you, but I only go to my dry cleaner and the girl who cuts my hair. Other than that, I don't go anywhere consistently because I'm too busy. Everything else comes to my house. Um, so yeah, hopefully we can do that. You are mentioning a big problem that really got accentuated for me personally as kind of a client-facing educator because for virtual tastings, I had clients in three different cities that wanted to drink the same wine and I was supposed to somehow ship to them and it got real complicated real quick. We worked with retailers that could ship multiple states and guess where they are? They're in New York. They're in California. Like They had the laws that allowed the shop to ship the same stuff. So I yes. totally get where you're going. I think we're heading in the right direction, but who knows? I appreciate you bringing that to light. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's something I'm passionate about because I think it'll really help our businesses. More wine for more people. Everyone wins, way. right? <laughs> way. Let's do it. I love it so much. Well, I appreciate your time. I know you have a packed evening tonight. So to catch you means so much. What's the best way for people to connect with you going forward if they have questions about wine education opportunities in Atlanta? Uh, probably the easiest way to do it is uh, on my Instagram, which is just my name, Ryan S. Mullins. You can DM me and I'll get back to you. Um, part of the beauty of my job also, though, is I'm a little bit of the Wizard of Oz. I stay behind the curtain. So that means I'm, I don't post in any central place where I do wine tastings, but I work with Vino Venue. I do wine tastings there. I work with Brooklyn Cafe. I work with Murphy's. I work with Highland Wine and Crystal. I work with Three Parts. So I will do tastings with those guys. Uh, but for the most part, um, I let them bring out their clientele and then I tap dance for them. So yeah, a little bit on Instagram. Uh, and other than that, if you're supporting Kelly in the wine industry, then you're supporting us. So we love y'all. Thanks for listening. For Gosh, that means so much. And thank you so much for your time today, Ryan. It was an honor to talk to you. So Likewise. much fun. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to the A Cork in the Road podcast, coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia, and interviewing people who are changing the wine world in the Southeast and beyond. You can find more about A Cork in the Road at at A Cork in the Road on Instagram, and make sure to check us out on www.acorkintheroad.com. See you soon, guys. Cheers.